JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. The Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline from Pro Football Focus. Brad Spielberger joins us. Where would Pink reside in your music catalog? Uh, not super-duper high, but you just shouted out the, uh, the greatest pizza place on earth in Lumalmati, so I had to comment on that. Yeah, I was there last night in Broadway. They have three locations. I, I think one, the one I was at actually has Dine In, which is spectacular in Broad Ripple. But Lumalmati's last night, you're a big fan, huh? Well, not not that anyone cares about this, you know, for my radio hit. But, yeah, I grew up near the original location in the, in the north suburbs of Chicago, uh, you know, going to the OG Lou Malnati's. I went to Rick Malnati's basketball camp as a kid. Yeah, so me, me and the Malnati's go way back. <laughs> now, is that Highland Park? Is that where you're from? Yeah, uh, in that area, yep. Yeah, you know, once upon a time, I went on my own self-tour of John Hughes' locations where he filmed – some of his films. Have you ever done that? I guess. No, I, I know what you're referring to. Yeah. I think I have not like with a tour, but by myself. Um, you know, there's the the Home Alone house and all all, all sorts of you know yeah. stuff around that area. Yeah, I saw that uh, where Samantha Baker lives in Sixteen Candles, uh, where both Cameron Fry and Jake lived in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and at uh, an extra. Right here, where um, Tom Cruise's house was, Joel lived in Risky Business right there in Highland Park, yep, too. Yep. So, yeah, I did that once upon a time. So, I'm not a nerd, as you can tell. Once upon a time, <laughs> I did that all on my own. All right, let's crunch some numbers here. I want to start with the good. The Colts get the win 27-13 in Carolina on Sunday. Kenny Moore with the two pick sixes. How did he grade out, and how much did that help out the rest of that secondary, which has been awful, to say the least, for most of the season? Yeah, the highest-graded corner of the week, unsurprisingly. He's one of 28 cornerbacks ever now to have two pick sixes in a single – single game and it's not like it was two you know 10 yard returns he had to really get on his horse and and, and haul half the field plus so yeah high, highest graded corner of the week above a 93 he also only allowed i think it was one reception maybe two receptions on four targets for 20 yards so you know it was good the rest of the game as well and like you mentioned the secondary is clearly the weak spot on this roster so good to see him show out have a have a really a game changing performance uh, they, they needed it. Hey, all right, a couple of things here. Uh, Kenny Moore on the open market, for example. I know he's 28 right now. Let's just say 29 next season. Uh, plays in the slot is where he makes his plays, and he is comfortable. How is that viewed marketability-wise around the NFL in your estimation? Yeah, it's been pretty fascinating. So when he signed his extension, you know, for four years, right around 8.25 a year, I want to say maybe $8.5 million per year, that was where the market was. You had guys like Justin Coleman signing Detroit for $9 million a year. You had a bunch of players across the league doing fairly well. And there was kind of this uptick in, all right, we're going to view this position not just as your number three corner or not just as the shortest corner on your roster, but there are certain defensive schemes where it matters more and more. You know, Matt Eberflus would tell you he really values the slot corner and what they can do in the run game as well as in coverage, yada, yada, yada. However, the last three, four off seasons, you're not getting paid if you're a slot corner. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you're reaching the open market, odds are you're not signing a deal with your own incumbent team, and you're just not cashing in. So it'll, it'll be interesting. You know, I think he's a, one of the better players to hit the open market in a couple of years. 
obviously has the pedigree, is a leader, all of those things. Um, but the market has been very unkind to slot corners the last three, four offseasons. He is Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline right here every Tuesday. Uh, the rest of the defense as a whole in a moment. Shaquille Leonard had 10 total tackles, seven solo to lead the Colts on Sunday. How did that play out? How was that viewed analytically speaking with the linebackers around the NFL Sunday? Yeah, very well. You know, and that linebacker trio, uh, you know, really is starting to all play together. And, and Leonard's getting healthier over the course of time, which is, of course, great to see. You know, we're used to him being a guy that can truly talk about flip the field and, and make game-changing plays. Um, yeah, you know, his run defense grade was one of the stronger ones he's had this season. His overall grade was his third best mark of the year. So starting to piece it together, we saw a slow start. But I think you're seeing him stack more and more quality performances um, you know, it was good in coverage as well. We have him credited only with allowing uh, three receptions on five targets for 20 yards. So making a lot of tackles, a couple of those tackles for loss uh, as well, which is, of course, important. Um, he looked good. All right, Brad, too. The defense as a whole, you, you take in those numbers with Kenny, obviously the best at the, that position in the NFL in week number nine, and then what we just talked about with Shaquille Leonard and the rest of the linebackers. How, how did the Colts defense as a whole grade out Sunday? Definitely one of the better performances. Uh, you know, there's no question about that. Obviously, it's been tough sledding for them overall. Uh, you know, Carolina, one of the worst offenses in the NFL. You know, not not breaking any news there, but – um, you know, still, it's good to see that performance stack, and it's good to see, like I said, kind of a groundswell of, I think you're getting more consistent play from the guys we've talked about. You know, Dio Dangbo with a great pass rush as a three technique on the interior to get that sack, a quick pressure, a quick sack. I mean, that, that's about as good as it can look from him. Um, so, yeah, a, a very, very strong performance in Week 9, no question about it. Um, and they were certainly due, you know, regardless of opponent, it, it's still good to see. Brad Spielberger of PFF, I'm going to let you thumb back to the offensive side of things for this team, where I think the numbers probably were much more bleak on Sunday in Carolina than certainly how it looked defensively for this this Colts team as to why they end up getting that win. But uh, let's start with the offensive line. Somebody had sent me this via social media that the grade out numbers for the offensive linemen were not that great for a couple on Sunday with that Colts offensive line in mind. How to look? Yeah, you know, a little bit of a step back. I've been singing the praises of a guy like Will Fries, who I thought had played well the last couple weeks. Right. Um, he, he did not in this game. Give him a 37 pass block rate in this game, uh, allowing multiple pressures, allowed a quarterback hit, uh, and then Quentin Nelson as well also allowed a quarterback hit, one pressure. For him, a 49 pass block rate is certainly not strong. So uh, I think, though, the, the really encouraging part is the continued you know, development of a Bernard Raymond. Graded out well for us, 77 pass block rate, just one pressure allowed. And then Ryan Kelly, the continued, when he's healthy, when he's able to focus on football, he's been really, really good this year. I want to say that's correct. He had the lowest pressure rate allowed among centers in the NFL. 1% of all of his pass block reps. Does he allow pressure? It's the top mark in the league. So, yeah, you know, some poor performances from, from Nelson Freeland and Fries, uh, but Kelly and Raymond definitely look good. I'm going to play off, Brad, some of the things you come up with here, but among those high water marks individually, both offensively and defensively in week number nine, what players are we talking about? Where would you start as far as having just a, a great offensive or defensive individually weekend? Yeah, can you kind of rephrase that? I'm not sure I follow. Yeah, I mean, the, the best offensively numbers, quarterback-wise, wide receiver-wise, and then in comparison, you know, what you get coming off the edge defensively. How some of those individual numbers who rank the best, individual name recognizable? Like quarterback coming off the edge. I don't. Do you not, guys not do it that way? I, I, I'm sorry. I, I like in terms of for the Colts, for the cross the entire No, across the, like, yeah, across the entire NFL, everybody. Uh, I got you. I got you. Yeah. So, you know, I think the best performances at quarterback this past week, I really think the best matchup uh, of the weekend was Jalen Hurts and Dak Prescott. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that matchup of, of obviously the NFC East there, we're going to see it happen again. But both guys were attacking downfield uh, or keeping the ball out of harm's way. Um, so, so they're certainly top of that list. You know, both guys, 10 plus yards downfield, were really attacking, were very, very efficient, uh, completed, you know, 75 plus percent of passes. Um, but then, of course, you got to go to two guys that are playing each other this upcoming weekend who were the first and second highest graded quarterback. The first, 
is Joe Burrow, who, who is back to looking like Joe Burrow. Agreed. Um, he's, you see the way he manipulates the pocket, the way he you know avoids pressure, plays outside of structure, but also early on the shot clock, anticipatory throws, throwing back shoulder, leading his receivers on the sideline, away from coverage. He was vintage Joe Burrow. And then the young buck, uh, I mean, C.J. Stroud was absurd uh, in this past game. 15 of 22 for 380 yards on passes 10-plus yards downfield. He had one turnover-worthy play despite throwing the ball about 50 times. Um, So, you know, with all the positives, there weren't really any negatives outside of one throw that did bounce off a defender's hands in the first half. Or no, excuse me, it was interception, an interception in the first half. So, but, I mean, five touchdown passes consistently – throughout the entire game, attacking the intermediate, attacking the middle of the field, um, you know, layering throws, touch throws, like the touchdown to Tank Dell, um, not, the, not the last one, but on the right corner of the end zone, just a beautiful moon ball in. Um, he, he was exceptional. So I'm excited for that matchup of Houston at Cincy this weekend. And, and that's why I wanted to ask you that, because I want that, that one-game comparison for C.J. Stroud, rookie-wise of the past – uh, how, how many games, I, I know we haven't seen very many, if any, but where does that rank all time in comparison to other rookie quarterbacks since PFF has been coming up with these rating numbers? Oh, that is one of the best performances we've seen from a rookie, no question about it. Um, and I know it is the most yards ever, you know, it is that. PFF era, the most yards, um, you know, his, in history. But I can pull up really quickly for you here just – Looking at that I should give you more time when I lead in these questions because I know you're looking no. this stuff up on the fly and you're really good at it. My apologies. No, zero, zero apologies. A good question. I, I, sh- I should have, uh, you know, prepped for it. But, no, you, know, you can't prep. Right I don't know if you can prep for that, but I love no. the way that you're scrambling right here looking for it. So that's my bad. Yeah, I should give you, you know, more time. You're good. I can delay. It is a top 10 performance among rookie quarterbacks over the last decade in terms of just PFF passing grade. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's way, way up there. And a lot of the other ones, you look at it, it's kind of lower volume, guys that were just efficient. Um, in terms of, you know, he threw the ball 49 times. Uh, if you look at just performances where the guy threw the ball at least 30 times, it's a top five grade among a rookie quarterback over the last decade. I mean, that, that, that's how good he was. So Brad Spielberger, by the way, you're allowed to, if you want to say, why don't you look that stuff up yourself? You can do that <laughs> if you want to, man. It just occurred to me regarding that game for C.J. Stroud was amazing. Here's another one, and I know you're not prepped for this. So you go to the uh, Vikings category here and Joshua Dobbs. Uh, given the fact he had like 48 hours to prepare and then he was thrust in there and didn't really know any of the plays, I I thought his performance, although I'm sure the numbers are not huge, I thought his performance was as manly a performance as I've seen over the weekend. It was remarkable. I mean, I really think it was nothing short of remarkable given the context. I mean, you have the video of him literally on the sideline learning the, the cadences and learning the hard count from the offensive line, he's doing it with the center, and then the guards and tackles are kind of giving him feedback. Like, oh, that's pretty good. Like, yeah, like, this is kind of, I mean, it's remarkable. And then apparently, you know, in the headset, because obviously he doesn't know the actual play calls, uh, Kevin O'Connell's literally giving him each player's responsibility, and he's telling each receiver, like, it's like almost like backyard football, right? Like, that's hey, awesome. You run a post, you, you yeah. run a slant, you run a go ball. Um, yeah, his it, grade actually is good. His grade was totally fine. Um, he ran very well, which obviously helps. You know, he had the touchdown. Um, you know, was scrambling efficiently all throughout the game. But truly, I think one of the more impressive things I've ever seen. Colts and Patriots is the game in Frankfurt, Germany, coming up early on Sunday morning. Of course, we'll have that right here. Two and seven are the Patriots. The Colts coming off that win. Some things that the Patriots do well compared to a lot of the things, I guess, in this case, in this season with Bill Belichick, they don't do well. One thing this Patriots team does bring to the table that could give the Colts some issues on Sunday morning, Brad. I think they're going to play up and play physical on these receivers. Um, you know, and I think a lot of the time you, you are seeing the Colts get away with teams that play soft zone and give them room to operate underneath. They, you know, Gardner should get the ball out very quickly. He's not going to sit there and hold the ball too long and take sacks. He's not going to wait for downfield passes to develop. Um, and you're talking about a Patriots team that is, you know, top three in the NFL and cover zero, uh, top ten in the NFL and in right of cover one, you know, those being coverages. Uh, where you're playing a lot of man, playing up in press coverage, bumping receivers off the line, it just doesn't allow you for a lot of those quick hitters, you know, that do leave yards after the catch and things like that. So 
I think that is going to be a challenge. Um, you know, in, in an NFL now where so many secondaries just sit back and say, hey, we'll let you have six, seven yards, but we're not going to let you have an explosive. The Patriots are still not afraid of, no, we're not, you know, let, we're not going to seed ground. We're going to make it hard for you the entire way. Um, and, and I don't think that's particularly conducive, you know, to what Gardner Minshew and this offense is doing well right now. Hey, what's the two-game outcome, in your opinion, of rookie Will Levis in Tennessee, Brad? I thought he just looked really, really good. Um, it, you know, it was tough against Pittsburgh, one of the best defensive lines in football, and the Titans' offensive line. For my money, is probably the worst offensive line in the NFL. And then he really just has DeAndre Hopkins and a bunch of bodies to throw to. So he made a he had seven completions on throws, ten plus yards in the in that game. Um, you know, a pretty high number. You saw him throwing between the numbers off of play action. He's been excellent. The big thing that I've noticed from him, it's funny because Stroud's kind of doing different things in his college tape as well. Levis was really, really poor at, at avoiding, uh, you know, sacks. He took a lot of bad sacks in college. He also didn't really throw down the field. Like, it was all off play action, and then it was all underneath or, you know, intermediate, and he's been chucking it deep, obviously. So, um, I think he looks great. I think there is no reason why you would go back to Ryan Tannehill, and, and I commend the Titans and Mike, Mike Rabel for making that decision today to give him the reins and let him start. Um, he, he's shown a lot of good so far through two weeks. To Brad Spielberger with us. Uh, one more thing regarding Deshaun Watson. He was back in the starting role with the Browns. And their win over the Cardinals over the weekend, too. What, what did he look like overall upon his return from injury? He was better. It was kind of funny. You know, there was the celebration of the touchdown pass early in the game, even though he kind of hit it off a guy's helmet. Uh, and it popped up in the air and fell in Amari Cooper's hands. But, no, he, he played pretty well. I mean, he had a top-five passing grade in the NFL for us this past week. Um, largely get the ball out of harm's way. Um, you know, two touchdown passes, had a couple drops, too. He could have had even more production than he did have. And obviously that game was out of hand. You know, uh, the Cardinals, I think, had 58 net total yards the entire game. So, uh, but no, he looked good. He looked good. He looked in command. He looked healthy. There was more velocity on the ball. This version of Deshaun Watson and this Browns roster can win a lot of football games. Do you guys have numbers for teams that go overseas early compared to teams that go later in the week? It's fascinating. We, we've been looking at it. Um, I love you, you guys. Know, you have numbers for everything. Thank you. Of course we do. Of course we do. <laughs> uh, it, it's interesting. So, so the first couple weeks, um, and kind of historically, there seems to be an edge to the team that goes earlier on. Um, and that was the case through the, the first couple you know, London games this season. This past week, though, Miami got there like six days before the game, and Kansas City showed up two days before the game. Um, and then the Chiefs come out and, and kind of end the game in the first half. So, I think it is kind of variable. It depends probably on the individual, but I would say there is a slight edge as far as we can see it um, in getting there a bit earlier, acclimating to the different environment, getting your internal clock adjusted to the different time zone. Um, but there, I know there is science behind ignoring everything I just said and kind of just getting in, shocking the system and getting out, uh, which is what the Chiefs did. But anyway, long answer short, I think it's smart to get there early if you can. All right, what's she writing about? What's the latest, Brad? What do you got? Yep, yep. so we're now looking at uh, – I'm doing a GM rankings article, probably coming out tomorrow. So kind of just looking at a couple different performance metrics, different than anything you've seen out there. It's not just, you know, my opinion based on who knows what, uh, kind of breaking down different ways GMs can win, um, you know, or, or find edge cases and kind of doing a – not a ranking, more of a tiers list of general managers across the NFL. It's awesome, man. It's always too. And a big lover of Lou Malnati's, who uh, you were coached by one of the Malnati's, correct? <laughs> That's right. Rick Malnati. Shout out, Rick. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had anybody on the show that's been coached up by one of the Malnati's. That's awesome. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. I appreciate you. Yep. Thank you. Brad Spielberger of PFF. Honestly, though, he has to run through a lot of stuff. And we don't get together before he comes on, so give him props. I, I could tell a couple of different times he's going, yeah, could you maybe bring these things a little bit closer together? But he's always really good about that. Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus, with us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. From setting the pace right now, Alex Golden joins us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. I was trying to think of some things 
to where to start. I mean, obviously, nine hundred for Rick Carlisle, winning wise, you can go there. Um, but that was as good as a consistent across the board effort as we've seen from this Pacer team really everywhere in a while. Yeah, this was obviously their best game of the season through seven games, and they couldn't miss. They were, you know, dead on from outside. They were hitting everything at the free throw line. It was just. If they shot it, it felt like it was going in. They played pretty solid defensively. They passed the ball well, rebounded the ball well. I mean, obviously, San Antonio, like you said, they're not the greatest competitor, but this was a great bounce-back win after how many errors did they have in that final moment against the Hornets. So many opportunities to win that game, and this looked like a team that was hungry and determined to get back and uh, maybe focus more to the – or pay more attention to details which they kind of struggled with there against Charlotte. I, th- I thought last night was important, at least in the short term, for a guy like Obi Toppin. And mm. I know it's early, and there has been you know not too much of an example of of his play and what he can do, what he can give. And again, early in the season, but the sample we had 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 not at all been really a good one, unless he's going down the floor and you know dunking on his own and then flexing afterwards. I thought last night was much more of what we had hoped to see out of him than really what we had had a chance to see so far with him. Yeah, it's been kind of uh, one of those wait-and-see type of things with Obi Toppin as you're trying to figure out how he fits in with this starting five and where he's going to get those touches and how he's going to get involved. And I thought he said it perfectly last night in the post-game press conference, talking about how him and Bruce kind of do the dirty work and they just you know, get the points when they're there, but they're not really looking to score. They're kind of looking to set screens and just run the offense to let the focal point be more on tie and Miles and Ben. So I, I thought that was a really good point that he brought up to kind of give fans an understanding of what his role is on this team. And I think that Rick Carlisle talked about something that stood out to me was just his energy that he has on and off the court. Because here's a guy that is watching a lot of close games in the fourth quarter because Aaron Neesmith was getting the playing time there at the at the power four position. And Obi Toppin was probably the most excited person on the bench during that clutch game against Cleveland. So I was just Really excited to hear that and see that because it tells you Obi Toppin's not an ego guy. He's just happy to be here, and he's doing all the right things. Well, and and the other reason why, and this is the unfair thing, but I, I judge early season by also his encounter in New York, you know, from the start of his NBA career to how it ended this past year and and you're thinking about all right well maybe there was a reason why he was subbed out late or didn't get legitimate playing time or always came off the bench or any of that especially late in his career when he doesn't have a good game you start thinking all right so was all this excitement a bit of fool's gold and and last night at least for a night I thought he took some of that thought process negatively away yeah I mean to be fair with the Knicks Julius Randle was playing at an all-NBA level. So he was kind of stuck behind a guy that was better at, at better than him at that same position. So I thought last night was a great challenge for him because being able to guard Victor Wimbanyama is something that I was wondering who is going to guard Victor because yeah. I didn't think Miles would be able to be quick enough to stay with him. And I thought it's nice to have an athletic player like Obi Toppin that you can at least throw at a guy like a Victor. So I would assume, I mean, this is just me assuming, but they got the Bucks here in a couple of nights. I would assume he draws Giannis first just because he has the upside athletically. So he's still a work in progress defensively. I think he's, you know, shown flashes of a decent rebounder and able to stay in front of his guy. But, you know, he, he talked about it. Trying to guard Wimby is a totally different animal that he's never had to do before. But if you look at previous Pacer teams the last couple of years, we would have had no option to throw at Victor in these games. And, just having a guy like Obi that you can actually put on someone like that makes a heck of a lot of difference. So Alex Golden is setting the pace on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What's What's been your level of thought regarding this defense so far this year? It's not looked good. I mean, <laughs> that's that's one way it's to looked, put it. It's looked a lot worse than even last year, too, and that took a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah and I think part of it, too, is just lineup combinations, trying sure. to get used to one another. They're playing a new defensive scheme, too, and when you're learning a lot and you're playing with new guys, I think it just takes takes time to gel. Like there's 82 games in the season. We've played seven. So I think last night was clearly their best defensive um, game collectively. And I think Rick Carlisle said as much today with uh, Kevin and Andy on, on the wake up call. So I really enjoyed uh, hearing what he had to say about that just because defensively, like this is a team that 
yeah, the numbers are going to be skewed a little bit because of the blowout loss in Boston, losing by 51 points. But you have to realize, you know, Miles is going to do what he does. Bruce Brown's going to do what he does. But your your best defensive unit is not your best five. So they're not going to always play together. They're going to have to have growth from a Tyrese, growth from Ben Mather, and growth from Obi Toppin in those areas when beforehand they hadn't really been very good defensively. But I think that Ben looked better last night. I think Buddy has been a little bit more assertive defensively, too. Uh, Obi's grown defensively just his first seven games. So it's a small sample size. They're, they're not anywhere close to being, you know, even top 25 at this point. But they're heading in the right direction, I would say, defensively over what they did um, uh, against uh, against the Spurs last night. And then even against the Hornets, they had some nice moments. They just, when they put up 50 points, they allowed 38. And I thought they, they let Charlotte hang around a little bit too much there in a game where they should have been up by double digits more or more. My thought on this is that because he is the best player on the team, obviously offensively, that's Tyrese Halliburton, that he needs some steady improvement defensively. And sometimes I wonder where that defensive ceiling for him might be. Where do you think it is? Yeah, I, I kind of struggle with that because I just don't really see it with him. I we saw I forget what game it was. They just kept attacking him, and it might have been the Cavs game. I, I can't remember, but he's he's going to be the guy that gets attacked a lot in late game situations. If you do have your best defensive lineup out there with Tyrese at the point, and he's going to have to figure out how to fight through that and just hold up on his own a little bit more as an on ball defender, and, and particularly as an off ball defender too. So. He's he's got a very high basketball IQ. I think he had a key still against the the Cavaliers in crunch time, being in the right spot at the right time, and he he's able to get those kind of defensive impactful plays. But I think as an on ball defender, he's just going to have to continue to build strength, add strength to his game, and just he cannot be a liability defensively. Obviously, what he does offensively, you cannot take him off the court. He's an incredible offensive player, but defensively, I think that he could be better than he has been, and I think. We're going to see that. I think that's going to be the biggest part of his growth this year is just how can he be more impactful defensively as an on-ball defender. Do you think sometimes late in games, and you know, obviously you, you revert back to that, that Chicago game in particular a little over a week ago, somebody had brought to my attention that they felt, this was a quote brought on this show, that uh, they had to, the Pacers need to hide Halliburton defensively. Do you think it's at that point, or is that just coming off a game where obviously Billy Donovan had a directive out there, and we're going to get a two-man game going on here, and we're going to go right at Halliburton, and we're going to get the switch. And the Pacers have been a defensive team that's so easily switched, and I think sometimes you can really see that get them in really bad situations for themselves. No, that's a great point. I mean, they, they have to make sure that Halliburton is not the guy guarding the other team's best player, and that's not going to happen a lot. He's probably going to guard the worst player, but if that worst player comes and sets the screen now and they're switching, they got exactly what they wanted. So I think they're going to have to make some adjustments to that. But honestly, I don't think it's to the point where you have to hide Tyrese. I just think Tyrese has to really step up and, and be that all-NBA-level player that he wants to be. I mean, he's an all-star for sure. Is he all-NBA? He may be headed that way, but he's not there yet, and he's going to have a lot of opportunities to get there this season. But I think defensively he's going to have to really step up and, and like you said, not become someone they have to hide because – if that's the case, then they're going to just hunt him all the time in the playoffs. And I don't want to have Trey Young conversations here about Tyrese Halliburton because he's clearly six foot five. He can hold his own a little bit better than that. But I, I do think that it just comes down to mind over matter a lot of times. And physically, that's the biggest problem, I think, is just he's not a strong guy. I mean, that's nothing against him. He's not a super strong guy. He's more of a, a lanky guy. So if he's able to just be smart and they're able to – kind of scheme the way they play their defense that's going to be beneficial for Tyrese but I don't think they're at the point where they have to hide him technically uh, Alex Golden is setting the pace talks Pacers with us Pacers Jazz coming up tomorrow night right here another 5.30 bailing which means get out there and get it done if you're going to hijack 30 minutes of my time coming up tomorrow night Pacers <laughs> of course Jazz in town we'll talk about that in, in just a second as well uh, so I had a caller bring up Benedict Mather a little bit earlier and felt that Rick Carlisle was not going about coaching him up 
accurately um, and taking them out in situations. And and I was quick to remind a couple of things. One, one Alex was Benedict Matherin has deserved to come out at some of these times because he just hasn't played well, and the Pacers feel that they have other options if somebody at that level is not playing well, and he has been subbed out. The other thing that occurs to me is that Benedict Matherin, when talked to in the offseason, constantly talks about wanting to be coached hard. That's what he wants. Thus, I don't think this is a bad situation the way Rick Carlisle is handling him in year number two so far at all. Do you? No, I think Rick actually is handling it the best way. And, and, and what he put out today was Kevin and Andy. I know I'm referring to that, but I just I thought what he said was great. He said last night was probably his best game of the year. And if people are expecting him to score 20 points a night, then you know they're just going to be disappointed. They're looking at this the wrong way. Ben Matherin wants to be great, so he's going to have to de- develop in different areas. I think the one thing we've definitely seen improvement from is his passing ability. Uh, has a much better vision of the court when he's driving. And sometimes – to a fault, he's not looking for his own shot, and he's trying to find others. I, I go back to the Cavs game. There was one where he had like a wide-open lane to the basket, but he was waiting for Miles to get open on a pick-and-roll that instead of just taking the layup, he was waiting for Miles and kind of threw it behind, him, uh, behind himself. And, and I think Miles actually made the layup, but it was one of those things where he could have just taken the layup. So we're seeing growth from Ben. It's just a different growth than I think people are accustomed to, and it's not popping on on the statistics or the box score. So – for me, Ben Matherin wants to be coach hard. You said that. That's one thing he has said multiple times. He wants to be a great two-way player in this league. So he's going to have to learn the hard way. And there's been times where his defense has been really bad. He just loses focus out there, kind of lets his guy get by him. Or if he's playing off-ball defense, he'll watch the ball. I think there was a clip out there where he like ended up leaving his guy for like 10 seconds where he was just watching the ball and someone got a backdoor cut wide open to the basket. And it's like little things like that are just going to help him grow and become better. But he's in his second year. He's he's in a different role than he was last year, being the scorer off the bench. He's a starter, playing against starter-level talent. I think Rick Carlisle, you know, the guy just got 900 career wins. If you think he's coaching him wrong, then I just think that you're looking at it the wrong way because Rick Carlisle has – done a lot of player development throughout his career and I think he knows exactly what he's doing. I just I just go back to Matherin seems like and he said he wants to be coached hard so you're, yeah. you're being coached hard in this case so that's that's what you end up taking. Alex Golden joins us. Uh, Bruce Brown this roller coaster ride is it going to level out here some at some point? Are you talking offensively with what he well, is? Yeah or? just everything so far it just seems like a roller coaster to me. I look at that wrong? I think a little bit. I think offensively we've seen some output from him just because it's what he's been asked to do in those games. But I think defensively he's drawing the best matchup, and that's just tough. I mean, he's playing a bigger role than he was playing last year at Denver. Obviously, that's a much more talented team than this Pacers team. He's the highest-paid guy. I mean, it's one of those things where I think with Bruce, my expectations for him are like, okay, any points that he you know attributes is – okay, those were nice points. I'm not really sitting here thinking, oh, Bruce has got to get us 15 a night. I'm not expecting that from him. I'm expecting good defense, good playmaking, and then whatever he adds offensively, you take it. But I think you got to look at the offense. You know, Tyrese, to me, he was more assertive last night, but he hasn't been uh, the other you know six games of the year. I think Tyrese and Ben have to be more assertive looking for their shots and miles, too, because they're probably the three most gifted offensive players in the starting lineup. And like I said, Bruce is going to be a beneficiary of what Tyrese is able to do. And the three-point shot has been pretty consistent, I think, if I, if I look right at the stats. I haven't checked it in the last couple of days. But he's shooting a good percentage, as far as I can recall. And to me, I'm not expecting him to be the savior or anything like that. I just think he's a really good player that's going to help with this team, try to grow their de- defensive identity, and then offensively just be an added bonus. Yeah, and I guess that's where I look at it. Because what do you expect him to be, especially if they're still, you know, a really bad defensive team? And I I know that he individually is not going to pick this up to the level that we're all looking for. But I I guess in terms of overall output, what are you looking for for him? Because it, it does seem, and maybe I'm looking at this wrong, I don't know if I'm just looking at it from one end, the defensive end, or the offensive end in, in game after game. I don't feel like I'm just kind of looking at a box score and going, it's been a bit up and down. That's just the way that, that I've watched and I've felt him so far. Is there any aspect of his game where he can, each and every night, consistently solidify to where maybe I would feel better? Or am I just looking at this wrong altogether? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing because I think he just hasn't really been involved consistently with the offense, and I think that's kind of been the case for a lot of guys on this team besides Tyrese Halliburton and probably Miles Turner because there's been nights when Ben Matherin's gone like four or six from the field or four or seven where they're just not getting a lot of looks, and that's part of the problem, but that's part of the uh, issue, I guess you could say, with having such a, a deep roster. Now, defensively, when you're guarding the best player, like if you're guarding Donovan Mitchell and he scores 38, like – yeah, that's going to be tough. I mean, Donovan Mitchell's an all-NBA player, so Bruce is always going to have the toughest defensive uh, assignment, which makes it, you know, like, okay, the guy he was guarding scored this many points. But like you said, it's a, it's a team effort. I, I just think that he makes them better. Like, as much as I love Andrew Nimhart and I think he's a really good player, I think Bruce Brown at this point in his career is better than Andrew Nimhart. but I, I still think that Andrew Nimhart has a higher ceiling. But I think Bruce Brown is just kind of who he is what he is. I think he's a really good role player that doesn't have an ego and he's just going to do whatever is asked of him on any given night. So kind of a, a good a comparison for me is kind of like a Danny Green type of player. Yeah, it's funny. I look at it this way and and I think if you look at it there are comparable numbers between he and Neesmith. But I just have this vision of Neesmith being more consistent so far than Bruce Brown. Mm, yeah, I mean Neesmith's been awesome. So there's no doubt about that. I mean you can make the case, and Neesmith's probably been the second but, best player. I mean, on the aren't team. their numbers comparable though, across the board? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're comparable, and they're yeah. kind of in a similar role, so to say. But I just think Neesmith is a more aggressive player. I don't think Bruce is super aggressive, especially offensively. You don't really see him look to create for himself very often. Uh, he'll shoot the corner threes, or he'll shoot threes on the wings when he's just kind of rotating around the offense, just trying to find the opening. But you know, we saw some moments, and he had 17 points on pretty good shooting against the Cavs, and it was like. Those points were needed because Tyrese was having a rough night and Buddy Hill came on on the floor. So I think that this group has just got so many guys that are kind of up and down players to a degree, JMV, where you're not going to get consistency on an 82-game, you know, regular 82-game schedule just because you don't have a a second fiddle to Tyrese. You kind of have a hodgepodge of guys that can be that on any given night, but you just never know who it's going to be. Well, and, and I, I remind everybody, too, because everybody says, hey, they're only, what, you know, seven or whatever games in uh, right now, and, uh, you know, you're, you're over the top. Well, I only have seven games to go on, so I'm just going on <laughs> what I've seen so far, and I'm, I'm yeah. quite sure that's exactly what the coaching staff and how they're looking at it as well. I just I'm, I, I know I look at it, you know, differently from what they call a, a different lens here, but that's just how I viewed both Neesmith and Brown so far in this kind of early thumbnail sketch. And Alex Golden joins us from setting the pace on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Uh, Buddy Heald off the bench at 19 last night. And I always say you can count on Buddy. I, I don't want to think about a Pacer world without Buddy on it. Is he showing that he right now is best suited coming off the bench, or might there become a point to where the offense in that starting lineup again is necessary? Again, seven games in, I'm just wondering what we've seen so far, this small sample, and what you think. Yeah, I think right now what we can really just take away from is that it doesn't really matter if Buddy Hill starts or comes off the bench because Buddy Hill is going to do what Buddy Hill does, and that's put the ball in the basket and be an effective basketball player. And I think, honestly, this this system fits him so well right now. I agree. That that it's one of those things where if you do take him off this team, you know, he's on an expiring contract, there's always going to be that looming, uh, you know, thought there is like, okay, what is, what's the long-term future here with Buddy? But, yeah, I think if they didn't have Buddy, they'd be really hurting because offensively there's times when they really need him in the game. And so – does he need to start? I don't think so, but I think there's ways they can make the rotation work where maybe he's like the first sub in for a Ben Matherin and plays a little bit more with Tyrese, knowing that him and Tyrese have that synergy together. And then we saw how good Matherin was against second units last year. Maybe let Ben run with the four guys that are coming off the bench at times and kind of let him get more of the, the focal point offensively there instead of kind of playing second fiddle or third fiddle to, to Tyrese or Miles with the starting five. So I think there's ways, ways they can balance it. But Buddy Hill shooting, I mean, seven of eight last night, just incredible. This guy is an elite-level player and at shooting the basketball, and the Pacers have got to love that because if you look at their shot chart, that's all they do is shoot threes or layups. So Buddy Hill does a lot of good things well. But I would say besides shooting, Buddy's improved as a passer this year, really showcased a lot of playmaking abilities, and his defense has gotten better. And so for him to get on the court more, he's going to have to play more defense, and that's why you saw him play 30 minutes 
against the Cavaliers and the game that the Pacers came back from behind and won after they gave up that huge 17-point lead. It's because Buddy was playing good defensive basketball, and he had good moments, too, against the Hornets where he knocked the ball out of bounds off P.J. Washington, I think it was, and just was able to impact the game in more than one way. Can you imagine there are some Pacer fans out there that, that think about, have thought about a, a life in a world on this Pacer team without Buddy Heald, which makes zero sense to me. None. Yeah, I mean, he's the perfect he's the perfect type of player for this system offensively. I will say the only reason why it would make some sense is just because of how many players they have at this same position. Right, it's just there's a lot of guards on this team. Like you got a Ben Shepherd, and I thought it was interesting because Rick Carlisle talked about Ben Shepherd in the preseason and said, you know, he plays very similarly to Buddy Heald. And the fact that he even dropped Buddy's name and how he plays kind of made you wonder, like, okay, is this going to be like Buddy's potential replacement if they do end up not being able to resign him or they trade him at some point this season? Because I think Ben Shepherd has shown a lot of. Uh, a lot of did you just say trade him by the way did you just say trade did you just reference trading him i i I gotta say my god i don't want to know because i I like ben shepherd too but not right now in that capacity and and, yeah and i mean with this team with this team buddy you mentioned it earlier he fits perfect and that's up for kevin and chad to figure this crap out but if yeah, you yeah. can't watch this team and notice just how important Buddy is, then I think you have your head up your butt as far as basketball is concerned, honestly. Right up your butt. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the Jonathan Taylor situation, but it's in a similar vein because you're thinking about it like this. I think they want him here long term. I think they want him here for the next couple of years, at least maybe a three-year contract, something like that. I think it all just comes down to money because they got to figure out how they spend this money how they're going to get playing time, how they're going to get better, how they're going to take that next step. Now, I do think Buddy is important, but if they can get a, a starter-level player next year and they don't want to eat into their cap space by giving Buddy excess amount of money, then there's a, a different side of it you have to look at, and that's the financial side. That's the business side. But from an on-court standpoint, Buddy Hill belongs in this system. He's a great fit with Rick Carlisle's system. And Rick Carlisle loves him. He loves Rick Carlisle. Him and Tyrese have great synergy together. They're great friends on and off the court. So it – he needs to be here, I think, for this team to like just have that extra player, that guy that can kind of be that microwave off the bench for him at times and be a starter level player that that's coming off the bench. Like you can't have too many of those. So I'm with you. It's it's a weird thing to think about. I love it. Where this team would hey, the fans love him too. I mean, Friday night against the Cavs, I was there. The fans were chanting Buddy's name after he just slipped on the floor trying to make a hustle play. So I think he's becoming one of the biggest fan favorites. I'm just telling you. This, this no, no, is- no. I'm I'm right there. Everybody thinks, yeah. oh, you're Miles this and Miles that. And while I support Miles, I, I love Buddy Heal, man. Yeah. I do. He's, he's been awesome. And he's, he's not he's a not shot taker. He is a maker. He mm-hmm. is. And, and I have seen it, and you have too, so many times so far this year, yeah. is watching defenses scramble rotationally when they realize that he is about to get the ball, I mean, it, it is it is a joy to watch him play offense in this era of basketball. That type of guy is necessary for any team's success, much less this one. Oh. So, yeah, for sure. And you're, and you're right about the defensive scrambling. Oh, I, I love it. The, I was at the Hornets game, and it was so funny to watch because. They had made an, a defensive rotation, and somehow they left Buddy Hield wide open for three. As soon as he caught the ball, Steve Clifford just threw his hands in the air, like, "How do we leave this guy open?" So, you know, it's <laughs> well, he did that little ball fake like, to the right. He did the ball fake to the right, and was that Neesmith that was in the corner? And defensively, somebody went at after Neesmith, and I thought, "My God, what are you doing here?" I, I mean, yeah. You got to pick your poison on that one, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Neesmith's been playing good, but not he's yeah. not the shooter that buddy is. You live with the three from Neesmith. You tell that buddy you're a wide open three. That's like shooting a layup. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Turner talked about it after the game Friday. It's like he lives in the gym, and I think you love that. Like I think any basketball fan in Indiana will love hearing a guy just puts in the work tirelessly. And it was great too because being able to be there a little bit with the media, some now getting there early to watch him warm up. Him and Isaiah Jackson warming up at the same time on Saturday against the Hornets, and him and Jim Boylan were kind of joking with one another because Jim Boylan's like, "Okay, we got to go over on this side because Buddy won't change his routine whatsoever when he warms up." And Buddy's like, "Yeah, I'm not changing, Jim. That's all love, but I'm not changing what I do." And that's what you love about Buddy. He does not change anything with how he uh, warms up, gets in his routine, and it's just a it's a cool dynamic to see. Best pure shooter here since Reggie Miller. 
I think you have to say so. I mean, we've had some good shooters, Doug McDermott, Bojan had some moments, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I love Doug McDermott too because I can't get drunk enough to think about that's even a comparison. No, I know, I know. I'm just saying. I like Dick Dermott. Nobody, no. Hey, I put you on the spot right there, Alex. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, it, it, like I said, he's he's a maker, and this group needs that. And here's the other aspect: they, the way they play defense or lack thereof, they can't afford any offensive mishap nights, or they will yeah. get buried. I mean, you've got to keep up that offensive pace and that scoring average because your defense is not ready for prime time to elevate itself yet. So you you got to keep on scoring the basketball. And that that type of weapon is just invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially with how bad their defense has been through the first seven games, it's just I think they have the worst defensive rating in the league right now. So it, it, they, they've got to make improvements. That's kind of been the, the talk, the emphasis at camp. We got to get better defensively, and you know, Carlisle said it best: talk is cheap, right? Uh, so we've yet to really see this team make drastic strides defensively, yeah. but I think they have made minor improvements just from what you see from game one to where they are in game seven. So I think it's going to get better. And we saw last year; it took this team a little bit of time to really get going. Around that twenty game uh, game mark last year, they really played well month of December. And uh, had you thinking this could be a playoff team before Ty went down? So. That's kind of my – I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens after they get through this home stretch. They go on the road a little bit. Can they keep this level of play up offensively, and how does their defense improve? Yeah, I think it has to lift them up right now. Hey, by the way, too, that floor for the in-season tournament, while Ooh. everybody joked about how hideous it was, I, I don't care what it looks like, though, but Alex, I don't want – you tempt fate with sliding in injuries. We know how injuries go with the Pacers and with the Colts. I don't think you want to jack around with that. Know what I mean? And when, when Buddy yeah. busted his ass and then Halliburton went down again, I mean, all, that's what worries me. I don't really care what it looks like. I just don't want these guys sliding around like it's the noon cafeteria at the elementary school. Yeah, it was a slippery court. It was more like a slip and slide than it was a basketball court. And yeah. You have to realize, like, that was a really high, highly competitive game, too, like really fun back and forth. And you have to think if these guys are probably freaking out every time about their footing. <laughs> On the court, well, and you, you, you think about that stuff, though. You do. You do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and these guys I, cut a lot quicker and harder than any of, any of us ever thought about cutting. So, just uh, yeah, different. I, I mean, I played on a court that was out of concrete one time, and we had to actually cancel the game in the middle of the third quarter because there was so much condensation coming up in the, from the ground. It's like, it's one of the most scary things. You're just walking, all of a sudden, you just it's like you're slipping on a banana peel. Uh, you're stepping on a banana peel. So, yeah, it's. Uh, it's one of those things where the NBA, they're going to have to figure that out because the fresh cut of paint shouldn't have that much effect on how these guys are playing basketball, you would think. Setting the pace with Alex Golden. Keep on keeping on. I saw you got that credential now. Go there and cover those games. Yeah, I'm going to the games that I can. I appreciate them allowing me this opportunity. It's a lot of fun to be able to do this with the podcast. And then um, I also have a blog that I started this year. I'm okay. doing 10 thoughts after every game called uh, – the the blog's called theblueandgolden.substack.com. So – you guys want to check that out that'd be awesome too i i try to do post game blogs every single time that they play a game so obviously just doing 10 thoughts uh what i saw from that game so you guys can check that out there but jmb i always appreciate the time and, and thank you for having the me. awesome chrissy myers get you that uh credential she's awesome chrissy's the best right oh she's the best the best so yeah <laughs> They're all down there watching Pink tonight, though. They're not caring about basketball tonight. It's about Pink. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't blame them. They need to get a little break from the, the long NBA season. My brother, keep on keeping on. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. I'll see you later. Colts and Patriots, Frankfurt, Germany, this Sunday. One person that is going to be absolutely thrilled with the timing may not be me because 6.30 is the pregame coverage, the Colts pregame huddle coming up on Sunday morning. But for the fifth quarter huddle, the host, along with Bill Brooks, the former wide receiver, Greg Rakestraw, this is right in your wheelhouse, right? you got to be really excited about the timing of the fifth quarter huddle coming up. My day is done by 3.30. Life's Bingo. Nothing wrong Sunday. with that right there. There you go. No, not at all. But uh, your turnaround uh, is almost race day-like in terms of being in at midnight and back on the air at 6.30 a.m. 
Well, that's exactly what I'm going to try to do. I may try to bridge that gap a little bit longer on Saturday night. See how far I can, I can push call it. I in my request at like 1.58 a.m. is what yeah. you're telling me. Yeah, and it's weird because it's like nothing but the 90s, but I just kind of figure I'm just going to cover all three decades at some point, like a lot. So I'm going to do some really – I told Eric Allen last week that be ready, I may be doing some really weird blank. So – that's what I'm thinking about doing, especially after that midnight. That's often what makes late night radio successful, John, is some really weird <laughs> got stuff. It. So that may be the way to go. You got it. So I'll be broadcasting to everybody that's working, a lot of convenience doors, a lot of third shifters and, and stuff. So hopefully I can get some good 90s requests from them coming up on Saturday to Sunday morning. Just play the clerk soundtrack. You'll be fine. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, all right, by the way, too, I don't know what happened to your phone. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry that you had like a re- double request queued up for me. And by the time I tried to call you back, because once I, I literally had to turn back on, like turn, I turned my phone on and off. Then I called Lovell. That took 20 minutes. By the time I had called you back, <laughs> I think it was basically on the super sounds of the 70s. So I apologize, but I crapped out in mid-phone call. Completely understand that right there. All right, I want to start here. you got regional finals coming up on Friday night, too. What uh, piques your interest around the state of Indiana? Because you got some humdingers, as they say, in southern Indiana, Greg. Yeah, the game that I got is a good one, Ben Davis and Cathedral. Uh, and, and Ben Davis, when they have played, it's been rather one-sided in, in favor of Ben Davis. I was very impressed with what I saw from Cathedral from their from their defensive scheme, what they did offensively against Lawrence North. Ben Davis, I think, can combat both of those things in terms of a power running game, uh, in terms of a little bit of a, of a different look defensively. Cathedral plays a 3-5-3 defensively, which, which hardly anybody does. LN could never kind of figure it out. Ben Davis, I think, has a better chance of doing that, that game down at UIndy. Uh, so it, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, the other game that catches my attention in 6A is obviously Hamilton Southeastern Westfield up in the northern half of the bracket. Uh, you know, in 4A, the fact that we've got Memorial in East Central, it's not Wrights, but Memorial that beat Wrights in the, in the sectional championship game on Friday night. Uh, Providence and Lutheran down in 1A. Uh, Adams Central and Carroll is another huge game of undefeated teams, of, of teams in each other in the 1A bracket. So, you know, we're down to 24 games left, and we're down to so many good teams that are remaining, you frankly will have more great games than bad ones coming up on Friday night. Uh, East Central, of course, the defending champion in 4A. I, I guess I don't know a great deal about the Pocket City teams here. In this case, Evansville Memorial. Will they have anything for East Central, who has just run roughshod over everybody this year? I think they will, because Memorial is always so well coached and has such postseason experience. I still expect East Central to win, but a lot of folks had assumed that Wrights would be the team that would be opposing East Central. It would be kind of one versus two. And Memorial has, has Memorial has had Wrights' number ever since Memorial jumped up to 4A. So Memorial played for the 3A championship in back-to-back years. They won it in 17. They were the runners-up to West Lafayette in 18. And then the next year, they won the 4A title in 19. And they have stayed at that 4A level since that time. And they keep winning sectionals and, and, and keep advancing, you know, deep into the tournament. So I think they'll give East Central a competitive game, but I expect East Central to survive that one too because I do think that East Central is clearly the best team in 4A. I think they'd have a shot at winning in 5A as well. Some have said that maybe they'd be competitive against 6A. I don't think they would against the top three or four teams, but I also think it would be fair to think that East Central might be amongst the top, say, eight or nine teams in the state of Indiana. Let's put it that way. Whiteland, Decatur Central, and 5A seems really sneaky good to be, and really sneaky good in that description may be a backhanded compliment. Well, let, let's give Whiteland credit because they lost a lot off of last year's state runner-up team. That is a completely different team that Darren Fisher has. Uh, and and B. Terre Haute South, who had a good year, uh, B. Terre Haute South in the sectional championship game last week, and because those two schools know each other so well, anything is possible. Decatur Central has been playing really well as of late. In the mid-state, as those schools continue to grow, simply gets better in football every year. There, there's, there's more talent uh, at each of those schools. And because of the schedule that they play, not surprisingly, those schools are starting to have deeper and deeper runs now into the postseason. So Decatur Central will be a slight favorite, but because of how well-coached both those teams are 
and the postseason experience that the Whiteland kids have for making the state championship game last year, anything's possible in that game. Wow, there's a lot of good stuff on this board. There's no doubt about that. Greg Gregstraw has you covered to Warren Central Center Grove. I don't know if we mentioned that coming up at CG on Friday night too, but in 6A, that is pretty good as well. So what have been your thoughts? I mean, we're a day in now with the official start of the college basketball season. You guys at IUPUI against Spalding officially got that underway. Was that a uh, Luke Basso idea right there, or that just happened the way that it happened? I'm sure Luke had a little bit of an impact on it, but what this is, and we have done this now the last few years, and one of my favorite sports quotes or just quotes about life is necessity is the mother of invention. Well, a handful of years ago, we had a Thursday game on the, basically it was the same time slated to be as an indie fuel hockey game. So we had the option of either playing the game at noon or going on campus and playing there. Like to say at the Coliseum at noon. Then there was kind of an idea that was hatched out of that that said, you know, why don't we kind of do like the Indianapolis Indians do and other minor league baseball teams do? Why don't we try to make this like a field trip day where we invite schools to come spend three hours with us at the Coliseum instead of in their classroom? Well, then this partnership with the NCA became a, you know, a, a thing, and they have a program called Readers Become Leaders. And basically, you reward kids for reading X amount of books at a certain grade level. I think it was largely third graders and fourth graders that we had yesterday from uh, various different school corporations across Marion County. We had over 4,800 fans uh, at yesterday's game uh, and decided to say, you know what? Let's go ahead and have this on the first day of the season, and let's make this the first game out of the shoot. Uh, and so IUPUI can lay claim to having the first game uh, of the 2023-2024 basketball season and basically have a record-setting attendance for a game at the Indiana Farmers Coliseum as well. It was a, it was a good day and a seven-point win for the Jaguars yesterday. Here's Greg Raystraw talking college basketball with us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pipeline. I, I guess anything up until especially the start of the NCAA tournament is going to make Boilermaker fans nervous. I mean, it, it's, it's funny how you look at a regular season and there's, oh, yeah, by the way, they'll win the Big Ten and they'll be a top-five team, a number one seed. You get all these publications listing them as a surefire Final Four team uh, coming up at the end of March. <laughs> I don't know how much good that does Boilermaker fans, right? This is one of those things where match teams got to get through it and get to that point before any of these Boilermaker fans of basketball have a chance to relax just a little. I, I honestly don't think – I mean, Boilermaker fans will show up, as evidenced by last night, and you kind of knew the poor Sanford had it coming. You know, kind of the first official game – since the loss to Fairleigh Dickinson, you, you knew that it was coming uh, and, and a beatdown was going to ensue. And you saw that in 98 to 45. I, what the spread was like 19. I think the easiest money you could have found last night was, was wagering on that one. But in the grand scheme of things, Purdue fans will care. They'll show up and support their team. But I, I don't think regular season record matters. I don't think Big Ten championship matters. I don't think Big Ten tournament cha- – and, and, and I hate saying that, but it's just the God's honest truth. Purdue's had all of those things. And Purdue has lost to North Texas. And Purdue has lost to St. Peter's. And Purdue has lost to – Fair. I mean, it's, it's, it's just this litany of double-digit seed losses over the years. And that's never going to go away. People still talk as much about Virginia losing to UMBC as they do them winning the national championship. But at least they've got the national championship to kind of balance that and said, yeah, well, we got this banner here that says we won the whole damn thing a few years ago, too. And so that's really what it comes down to for, for Purdue. And I realize that that first barrier, that first line of demarcation is that first Final Four trip since Market Square Arena in 1980. That's the hurdle you've got to climb first, and you see if you can win a couple of games there. But it's great for that Purdue wins, and, you know, I, I like Matt Painter. They've got 11 Indiana kids on that roster. I called most of those kids' games in high school. I know those players. I want them to be successful. But I'm also the first person to tell you 
I don't care what they do in the regular season. I don't care what they do in the Big Ten tournament. I care what they do starting the weekend of March 21st through 24th, the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament. Hey, Greg, is there a shred at all of connection between where Purdue is right now and what we saw a lot of of endings of seasons and seasons from the Colts prior to winning Super Bowl 41? Is there a relation to be made there on any level? You know, I, I, I think there is. Um, you know, it, it never, and, and I, I guess the only difference that you have is that, you know, yes, your seating is controlled by what your record is. You, you're not exactly playing for home games. You're playing for games that are closer. So obviously because there's first and second round games in Indianapolis this year, if Purdue's a one or two seed in theory, they get to play those first couple of games at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. As compared to the Colts, where you said, all right, you're playing for a bye, you're playing for two home games, and even then, it didn't seem to work at times for the Colts until 2006-2007, they were the number three seed. So there is a correlation there, but, but, but just enough differences because, again, you're not playing for a true home court, if you will. All right, IU Florida Gulf Coast as the Hoosiers get their season officially underway coming up tonight. I don't think this is Lob City. I, I like the Hoosiers' chances. Uh, I frankly love the fact that Indiana's first two exhibition opponents were Indianapolis and Marion. I agree. I think that's I think that's awesome. So first of all, congratulations and kudos to Mike Woodson and staff for making that happen. Um, I, I think it's an IU team that that has a lot of potential, but there's a lot of question marks there. But I, I doubt any of those get tested against FGCU tonight. Carson Wentz signs with the Rams. More people around here when he gets in there. I'm assuming it's a matter of time with the injury situation. When and if he gets in there, hoping he does well or hoping he does not do well. What do you think? I would assume it's the latter, John, would be my guess. Oh, come on now. I'm, I'm the grudge holder around here, not these I, fans. I, there, there, there will be a lot of people that blame him for seeing a 9-4 and four start go haywire <laughs> uh, in 2021. So my guess would be the latter. Victor Winbayama last night came yeah. in here at seven foot four. Um, you and I are a lover of the past. Um, and seven two would be really easy um, to figure that out. They had to cream Abdul Jabbar probably every time. Who's your favorite all time NBA player, seven three or taller? Uh, did Swin Nader get to seven three? I believe Swin um, Nader did not make seven three, Greg. Chuck Nevitt, seven foot five. <laughs> Chuck correct? Nevitt definitely. There, made, there is made a it. Look, look. Look this up. There is there is a Detroit sporting goods store commercial from like eighty seven, eighty eight, and and uh, and I think Converse was behind it. So like Chuck Daly's in it. Isaiah Thomas is in it. I, Rodman, I think, is in it. And for some unknown reason, Chuck Nevitt is in that commercial. So see if you can find, if you can find that thing as to, you know, you, like, like we, need to, we need the most, the most knowledgeable Pistons, the most people, the, people will recognize them immediately. You know, Chuck Daly, yep, hair, got it. Isaiah Thomas, yep, Hall of Famer, got it. Joe Dumars, get him too. Big tall guy. You're talking about uh, John Sally, no, no, the other tall guy. Uh, James Edwards, no, 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 the really tall guy. Chuck yeah. Nevitt, yeah, get him. So, uh, yeah, so I'll go with Chuck Nevitt. How about that? So, Chuck Nevitt had two legitimate nicknames, and one, I want to say, was the first time this nickname and or reference was ever used, and it's still incredibly popular today. Two nicknames, okay. one that's still popular today. Uh, I don't know. Hit me with that one. Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, that, was one. I, I, assume that, I assume that was the less obvious one. That's yes. the one that I would have guessed, yes. I I think this is the first time, and I have not documentation that bears this out, but he was nicknamed the Human Victory Cigar. <laughs> and I think he was I think he was the first one ever to be named the Human Victory Cigar. Well, he played – didn't he get like a cup of coffee with the Lakers too? Didn't he spend time uh, with both? Well, I think, I think he started mid-80s with the Rockets, and he, uh, he was with the Lakers, Pistons, and then I think went CBA and then may have gotten back in the NBA a couple of different times. But he was always on the end of the bench. And I would have to look this up. I, I cannot make this official, but he may have been the first person to ever be described with the nickname the Human Victory Cigar. 
So he played, he played, you know, for about a five-year stretch, like yeah. 85 to 90, right. somewhere around there, if I remember right. Yeah. Think right. about the winning percentage for the teams he played for. The Rockets with the NBA Finals in 86. Yeah. The Pistons were there in 88, 89, and 90. The Lakers were in the Finals in 87, 88, and 89. Chuck Nevitt may lead the league in wins per minutes played in the history of the National Basketball Association. All right. With that in mind, I'm going to ask you, I'll give you mine a little bit later on, but uh, I'm going to ask you this in closing uh, because you brought up Chuck Nevitt and you brought up his time with the Pistons. If I present this idea to the Pacers, do you think that it will be accepted or will it fly over like a lead balloon? If you remember with the Pistons, they had their first names on their warm-up jackets. Yes. So what if I were to present to the Pacers an opportunity to be different and also nobody cares about the Pistons past around here because we hate them. There's no doubt about that. But would they be cool with putting their first names on the backs of their warm-up jackets? Their first names. Well, see, they, they put they, the last name was on the back of the jackets of the Pistons. The first name was on the front. Was like on the like like the Detroit Pistons basketball logo was on one side, and like the See, I thought they I thought they like, had one year where they had it on the back too. Maybe I could they, be wrong, yeah, but I, I I remember that it was like you know like you worked well, in like yeah like an well even better shop. even like better you worked at team when you worked at Team Entire you had a patch that said John <laughs> yeah, you know on your yeah, shirt yeah you know and so I think that's how they did it so perhaps as part of the hard work image of Indianapolis. We can have a similar patch with the like the Pacers crest is on one side. I'm using my soccer terminology, Pacers logo is on one side, and like one of those you know white patches in like you know navy blue script. You know it could say Daniel. You know for Daniel Tice. You never get. To I like that. Or I, that's, a, that's a great I think idea. That's the way to go. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You think they would accept yeah. that? Or they decline. But we can yeah. we can at least suggest it. I mean, why not? I like that idea right there. Greg Rakestraw's busy coming up this weekend per usual too. Mark Eaton, by the way. Uh okay. seven three and over favorite all time. And he obviously grew at the Salt Palace with Carl Malone and John Stockton in those early years. Thurl Bailey and the Utah Jazz. Mark Eaton, who passed away in twenty twenty one. My favorite all time seven foot three and taller NBA player. Greg, I appreciate you. Can I can I give one more shameless plug if you don't mind? You better you better do it. So Friday night, obviously we got Ben Davis Cathedral. On Saturday, go to iscsportsnetwork.com or the ISC Sports Network YouTube, Twitter account, Apple TV, etc. 129th Monon Bell Classic, Wabash and DePaul. There will be ten thousand people or more in attendance at Little Giant Stadium in Crawfordsville. Wabash is seven and two. DePaul is nine and zero. Winner of the game represents their conference in the Division Three playoffs, and frankly, that is secondary to beating the other guy. Right. This is the, this is the third year that we have had the game on ISC. Simply put, is one of the favorite things I get to do every year. So Saturday afternoon, spend your if you can't make it to Crawfordsville, spend your afternoon with us on ISC for the 129th playing of the Monon Bell Classic. And that's like the only time of year when like any chicks go to Wabash too, right? I'm not going to comment anything on that because I have to be neutral. I can't give any digs to Wabash or to Paul whatsoever. But when I was there two years ago, um, plenty, of you saw a couple. Fem- plenty of fine-looking females were on display rooting for both teams, both Wabash and DePaul. Buddy, I appreciate you. See you.